Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 10 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. I think there's a story in here about pushing the boundaries and about trying for something and trying to contribute to the world in some way, even if doing so seems impossible. Mm. Like This book is the impossible for me. I'm a lad from a poor area, and yet here I am publishing what I think is a cool book with a PhD working in in a university. I've gone through the process of writing a, a few books, and this one involved getting an agent, and it involved signing a deal with a big publishing house. It involves doing podcasts like this. It involves writing articles for mainstream outlets and doing radio interviews and all those things. And so if anything, for people out there, I sort of want to say that the impossible is is possible if you keep pushing if you can relate to your thoughts and feelings in such a way that you can have them all your doubts all your discomforts or your all your feelings of lack of self-worth if you can have them and still aim for the thing that you really want so yeah anything is possible i think i'm an, I'm an example of that peace supers thanks for tuning in this week it's what you've been waiting for the second part of my chat with psychologist author and academic Dr. Nick Hooper. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioral science in a way that's practical, accessible, and fun to nourish your mind, to flourish at work. In part two of our chat, we delve into the process of writing a book. Who knew that choosing the title and strapline was so important? Nick also chooses a song, or songs, to announce the arrival of his book. And he has a couple of cracking takeaways, one for students and one for parents. P-Supers, this was recorded on a special day in June, a significant day for the Hoopers and the evolution of this book. You'll find out more about that at the end. The book is now out there and live, folks, and I've seen some glowing and well-deserved reviews. You can find a link to buy The Unbreakable Student on the show notes at rossmackintosh.co.uk. Let's take a quick scoot over to the news desk. Reviews are in for our last episode, which was a surprise interlude with my dad, Big G. Here's a review from, checks notes, one Nick Hooper in Wales. If, like me, you're a fan of Gone Fishing with Mortimer and Whitehouse, and I urge you to listen to this People Soup episode. Two gentlemen having a chat, embracing the moment, whilst walking surrounded by nature. Lovely stuff, Ross. Well, Nick, thank you so much for listening and sharing, and for everyone who listened and enjoyed hearing more from Big G. And one other announcement, folks. We're back, McGaza Productions. Myself and Dr Annie Gascoigne have launched Flexibility at Work. It's a programme designed to support you, your people, leaders and organisations to cultivate flexibility for greater effectiveness and well-being. We'd love it if you joined us on this modular programme and you can find out all about it via the links in the show notes. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could be useful. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part two of my chat with Nick Hooper. Yeah, it's so interesting listening to that clip because it gives an insight into where my head was at in the past. And what it does is it validates 
the story that I've written in the book. Because you know what happens with time and memory. Memory isn't the most accurate thing in the world. And so you start building these stories that you think are what happens. But you, sometimes you think, did that really happen? Or is this just a story that I've told myself so many times now that I actually believe it to be true? And so in the book, I talk about like the story behind the story. How did this all begin for me? And it began on my son's second birthday when we watched a film called The Lion King. And in that uh, clip that you've just played, I talk about that. So now I'm thinking that actually happens. Brilliant. You know, I'm not telling <laughs> a huge, a huge lie in my book. What I heard in that clip maps onto my memory of what happened, which was we were watching The Lion King and in The Lion King, the daddy lion Mufasa dies and it broke me emotionally. I started crying and my son is uh, wondering what's going on and I'm managing to cover my face and he's saying, what happened to the daddy? What happened to the daddy? Well, like, he's sleeping. He's sli I'm thinking you're two. I can't explain death to you right now. And so he's sleeping, mate. And then after that, I just thought, oh, wow. Yeah. It was almost an epiphany which is ludicrous, given what I'm about to say, that people die. It's like, oh my word, people die. I could die. And if I die, I'm not going to be around to, to guide my son. And my wife would do a wonderful job. But still, I want to have some input. And I feel like I've got some important things to say, especially about well-being and mental health and all, some of the things that we've talked about already. And so I started writing a book to Max, a book written to one person the next day after that. And I'm not sure at what point I did the podcast to you. I'm not sure what month it, it was at, but essentially I then spent about a year writing the book just to Max. And so I had this book, it's still on my computer, it's like 50,000 words, and it's going to be given to Max at 18 years old. And it will be especially important if I happen to die before he's 18 years old, because it's this very personal story that includes a lot of me and a lot of the experiences in my life combined with some advice for how to manage his, his thoughts and his feelings. And so I had this book. And of course, when you write a book, a part of you is thinking, I wonder if more people could find this useful, especially a book like this, a book that I thought was real and wasn't dressing up what it is to be a human being in any other way than what it is to be a human being and was offering some concrete and, and useful advice for how to move forward positively in your life. And so I actually, via social media, put out a call essentially and said, what do I do now? If I want to publish this book properly, if I want this book to be in, in stores, in shops. And a couple of ACBS members reached out to me. One was Elaine Caskett, who wrote a book called All the Ghosts in the Machine. And one was Joe Oliver, who's written a number of act books. And they kindly forwarded my work to an editor at a big publishing house in London. That editor was a guy called Andrew McAuley. He was at Little Brown Publishing Group. And he got back to me and said, I loved it and it would never get through the editorial review process. He said, you need an agent to help you shape up what exactly it is that you've written here. And so he actually put me in contact with a couple of agents and one of those agents agreed to sort of work with me on a really informal basis. So we started working on a synopsis and a first chapter. But remember at this point, the book is written to one person, it's written to Max. And so we had those conversations about like, who is this book really for? And the book is, is written to Max as an 18 year old. And when I'm writing the book, I have my own students in mind as I'm writing it. The students that I see that are suffering is a, 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 a poor word because it's got such negative connotations, but like struggling, not doing particularly well, not managing to fit in or to socialize or to manage the stresses that come with deadlines and exams and stuff. 
I'm thinking of those students when I'm writing this book for Max, because I assume he's going to be a little bit like them by the time he gets to that point. And so it was a really natural transition to write the book, to change the pitch of the book, to be students rather than my son. It didn't take a whole lot of editing. What's interesting is that we actually changed the pitch of a book for a while to parents, to be a parenting book. And the reason for that is because we were thinking, well, not many students actually buy books, let alone books about well-being. So maybe we could write the best book in the world here, but nobody's going to buy it because students don't buy these sort of books. And so we actually changed it to parenting, but on the advice of Andrew McAleer, again, back a little brown, because we went back to him afterwards. He said, write it for students. And so DMX was changed into the Unbreakable Students. Most of the book is what DMX was. It's just a much better version of DMX now. The arguments are tighter. The writing is better. And some of the more personal stuff has been taken out. So I needed to leave enough personal stuff in there that allowed the reader to see me as a human being, but not too much personal stuff so that it's inappropriate. You know, mm. I think therapists have it right with personal stuff. It's always personal stuff with a purpose. You don't want to overindulge your own stuff when you're speaking to someone because that will take over the session. It's got to be in the service of illustrating a point. And so I really took out a lot of personal stuff that probably only Max would be interested in and left in the personal stuff that could be used to help me make a point. And so, yeah, that's how, how that all happened. It started off as Dear Max. That book still exists for Max on my computer. My wife knows where it is in case I happen to be uh, maggot food in a few years. And uh, The Unbreakable Student essentially evolved from Dear Max. And I'm so curious. I think the title is brilliant. What was the process of getting to that title and the subtitle as well? Because I know that's really important in the publishing world. Oh, my word, Ross. <laughs> the word painstaking doesn't do justice to what it is. Because prior to being in the publishing world, which I, I apparently am now, I never realized how important a title was. So I wrote the book without a title. I didn't even have a title in mind, which is ludicrous, right? Because when I tell students to write essays, I tell them, Everything that is in the essay sits under the umbrella of the title. So the title is really important. You need to know and be bang on with your title because whatever your title is makes the information within your essay relevant or not relevant. It has to be linked back to your title. But I wrote the book without a title, really, apart from DMX. And so when it came to getting a title, Jamie, he walked me through a bookstore to illustrate how important a title was. And of course, you walk through a bookstore and there are 10,000 books. And so the question becomes, what makes someone stop at your book? And the answer to that, of course, is the title. So I wanted to go with something obscure, like becoming Mufasa because of the whole Lion King story, right? I was going to tie it together like that. I thought that's a brilliant title. He was like, you put that title in a bookshop and nobody stops to pick it up. Not many people will, right? Because you're not given enough information about what your book is about in the title mm. for people to go, oh, right, that's going to be relevant for me. So like, who walks past a book called Becoming Mufasa and goes, oh, yeah, that will be for me. Like, I needed students and parents of students to see the word student somewhere in order to be able to walk past it and go, oh, right, this might be for me. And so we went through probably 20 or 30 titles. I probably emailed and WhatsApped 30 or 40 people saying this is roughly what the book is about. Can you send me some ideas for titles? By the time we had 50, 60 titles, and then you're just like, I don't even know 
what's good and you know when language just starts meaning nothing there are just words in front of you that mean nothing mm. and so i ended up pulling out the unbreakable students and a lot of people have said it's a it's a good title but jamie at the time said i'm not sure about it because I, i'm not sure if it's a bit macho if it's a bit too masculine you know this idea of unbreakable mm. and he said not only that but if when you read the book you're not offering unbreakable you're offering flexible I'm like yeah that's really interesting because something can be flexible and unbreakable. And that's exactly what I'm offering in the book. I'm offering someone psychological flexibility, the ability to have unwanted thoughts and feelings and still do the things that are important to them. And that, according to my definition, is what unbreakable is. And so the unbreakable student came out of that and then they were like, okay, so you need a, a snappy and catchy subtitle and people love like six rules for this or seven bits of advice for this or something along those lines. And so we needed to get the word university in there. So six rules for staying sane at university sort of happened after that. And so I'm really happy with it now. And I'm happy that people like the title because that it was not a straightforward process. It took months and months. I'm talking about walking your dog and thinking about nothing else other than what is going to catch someone's attention when they're walking through a bookstore or when they're searching on Amazon or, or wherever people buy their books. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's so important. If anyone out there is thinking of writing a book, have the title in mind, be thinking about it all the time. What's the thing that is gonna make someone pick up your book? It's great to get that insight and to think about the thought that goes into the title and the, the sort of strap line to stop someone walking through a bookshop and go, ooh. So what's it like to be on the, the cusp of release? Ah, I don't know, nerve wracking. I'll be real with you, Ross. Imposter syndrome isn't far away when you do something like this. Because when you do step outside your comfort zone, it doesn't take long for, are you worthy? Are you, are you good enough? Are you smart enough hmm. to do this? Or are people gonna really find out who you really are and that you're incapable of doing such a thing? And so it's vulnerable. I've been asked to give lots of talks about it and stuff. And you wake up on the morning of the talk and you just think, I'm wasting people's time by having them listen to me. I mean, luckily I've got some skills that allow me to manage such thoughts and feelings, but they don't go away and they're not particularly nice. And so it's vulnerable and it's so exciting. I've been thinking about this for four years. Well, four years since it became the publishing thing, say three years. And there were so many moments where it could never have happened. It took a number of things falling into place for this to be able to happen in this way. It's a lovely experience to have. It feels like I'm really living as a, as a human being by going through this. I think that from day one, success for me was holding a physical version of my book. And that happened yesterday. I get to hold, it It feels like a book. It looks mm. like a book. The words inside looks like a book. And I just think, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, whatever, go on holiday to Turkey or to Spain in the summer, you take a book with you, you lie down on a sunbed and you read someone else's words. And there's a chance that there'll be people out there. Well, actually, probably not this year. They'll probably be in West Wales. But there's a chance <laughs> someone will be lying on a on a sunbed somewhere reading my words in a book that looks like a book and feels like a book and is written like a book. And there's just something lovely to almost like join the company of people that have had that, that have managed to have their words read by other people. In that regard, success is I've held a physical version of the book and some people are probably going to read it, which is great. Success for me isn't selling a million copies because there's so much out of our control as authors with no celebrity status. It, you know, it would take not, I want to say a miracle, but it would take a lot of luck and good fortune 
for it to become really, really well known. And so I, I think it would be wrong to put number of sales to, to gauge success with regards to the number of sales. The, the one other criteria of success for me, and I'd love your listeners to note this, is I really want to walk into a bookstore and see it. I'd love to sign it. I probably, because I'm a goody two-shoes, I probably ask permission first. And they probably say no, and therefore my dream would be gone, rather than just pick up the book and like write a note in it or something. I would love to see it in a bookstore. And so if your listeners happen to walk into a bookstore one day in the next six months and they see my book in that bookstore, take a picture, send it to me on social media. I want to see that this exists, not just on a website or not just in my house. I want to see that it exists out there in the world. So that's the other thing that I'd love to see. And again, that's not dependent on sales. It's dependent on this thing just existing out there in the world. And so that's like where my head is at. It's vulnerable and nerve wracking and exciting and exhilarating all at the same time, which is what it is to be a human sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. And I love you talking about your vulnerability, kind of speak about it. And, and yeah, you've got the skills. You can role model those skills to be a human about it and maybe share them in those, in those talks, I guess. I have to be real. So I have to draw upon my experience in the moments in those talks because that helps people connect with me and connect with the message of the book, which is the most important thing. But, you know, the morning of the talk, it's not nice being in my head. And I'm sure lots of people get that. Yeah. I remember once I was I mentioned Kelly again, but I was at a, a workshop in Reno with Kelly Wilson. And he said at the beginning of the workshop, I woke up this morning and I was so close to just jumping on a plane and going back to Olmes because I just thought, I can't believe these people are going to be here listening to me. How can I hold this place of importance? But he managed to he managed to make it in. And so it's a real honor to be in a position where I've got something like this that exists out in the world where people will be reading my book and hopefully be getting something good from it. Mm. It's exciting, so, Ross. It's really exciting. So P-Supers, there's a challenge. When you see Nick's book out there in the bookshop, take a photo and post it to him on social media. He'll be giddy. And Nick, yeah, I also I have a challenge for you. Okay. When you first sit in a bookshop, I want to see your blimey. I know. I will. I will do it. I will take a picture of myself. I bet it'll be a surreal experience. I bet people out there and my family, for example, and me might think that I would get into that situation, see it and just burst into tears. But I think there's just as much chance as me feeling like numb, like having a really surreal experience of what's actually going on here. This is so bizarre to see my book in a bookstore. So I'll try and capture that for you and uh, take a picture of it. I've been into some bookstores where I've asked for help with, have you seen any books that do this? What are the best books that do this? And like people that work in bookshops are generally really helpful and really knowledgeable about books. Mm. And so I'm gonna go back to them and just say, just to let you know, remember that conversation that we had four years ago about books and how bookstores work and whatnot. That really helped me when it came to writing my own book, which is now just over there. I'd love to have that. It'll feel real. There's something about legacy, isn't there, in a bookshop? There's something about that could be there in five years' time or 10 years' time. There's something about parts of you existing, not just in you, but out there in the world. And I think there's also that thing about people passing it to a friend or recommending it to a friend, saying, look, I'm not giving you my copy because I need it for me as a reference, but um, you need to get yourself one of these, mate. So that's what I'm really looking forward to is when people don't know me. So when it does get passed from someone who knows me to a couple of people that don't know me, what do they think about it mm. when they've got no affiliation or no, no reason to be overly positive? But I'm really looking forward to seeing reviews from people that don't know me. And I, I hope they get something from it. 
So Nick, you know I like a good takeaway from my lovely guests. I wonder if you had anything you'd be willing to share, perhaps in relation to the book. Okay, a takeaway. So for students, my takeaway would be this. Time moves really quickly. And this university experience that you're having, you could well in the future look back on it and wish that you'd done things slightly differently or wish that you could even be back there, but you won't be able to because time moves in only one direction. And so although my book talks about the reality of being a human being, which involves unwanted thoughts and feelings and discomfort and some sort of suffering, there is also opportunity for you at university to embrace that experience and to embrace that moment. And I think my book will be able to give you some skills to help you to do that. And so enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself when you're there. For parents, I can't imagine what it must be like for you right now, because if you've got children going to university, they now exist in a world away from you often. So like a part of your heart is out there fending for itself. And that brings a heck of a lot of vulnerability. And so what you want is the knowledge that your children, and they'll still be your children, they'll still be your babies, will have the skills to be able to flourish when they go to university. And I think that my book will give them some ideas for how to do that. When students come to university, I step into your shoes. I'm the person now that has to look after your children. And it's my responsibility and my honor to do that. And a lot of the stuff that is in this book is drawn from my experiences of doing so over the last 12 years. But for you, maybe maybe you'll be loving it. Maybe you're like, oh, the house to ourselves. We can chill out and stuff, but it'll also be hard. And so you'll be having to look after your own your own self-care as well. In fact, it might not be a bad idea for you to read the book because one, it's going to give you an insight into what your children are reading. But two, it'll form a pretty good blueprint for yourselves when it comes to your own well-being as a parent. And three, this is a massive take on, but I, I'm going to go with it. I think there's a story in here about pushing the boundaries and about trying for something and trying to contribute to the world in some way, even if doing so seems impossible. Like this book is the impossible for me. I'm a lad from a poor area. And yet here I am publishing what I think is a cool book with a PhD working in in a university. I've gone through the process of writing a, a few books. And this one involved getting an agent and it involved signing a deal with a big publishing house. It involves doing podcasts like this. It involves writing articles for mainstream outlets and doing radio interviews and all those things. And so if anything, for people out there, I sort of want to say that the impossible is is possible. If you keep pushing, if you can relate to your thoughts and feelings in such a way that you can have them, all your doubts, all your discomforts, all your, all your feelings of lack of self-worth, if you can have them and still aim for the thing that you really want. So yeah, anything is possible. I think I'm an, I'm an example of that. Now, Nick, you know I like to get creative and think big, and I do like a good song. So if you could herald the arrival of your book with a song, what would that song be? You know, when you watch magic shows, <laughs> you never want to know like what really goes on behind the scenes. I'm now going to give your people, soup listeners, insight into what goes on behind the scenes. I'm doing this without your permission as well, because I'm just that sort of rebel. But Ross kindly sends some potential questions that he's going to ask his guests prior to the podcast. And the last two questions were this one and what I assume is the next question. And myself and my wife have basically talked about this and nothing else for about two days. 
which is what song we were thinking what what what's the context that you were imagining first so like am i am i walking in somewhere like what are we looking for here oh that's a good point well it can be it could be anything it could be you walking into a, a zoom room to chat mm. to someone about the book with a, a yeah. few people who are interested like a book group it could be you yeah. walking onto a stage in a big venue and they play yeah. this music oh it's so hard because <laughs> for students you would want to go with something more upbeat but it's hard to find songs whose lyrics will map onto like the messages of the book which is what you'd want so you'd be upbeat for tokenistic purposes and also as much as the book is entertaining and funny i'm not sure it is upbeat but then again would i want to add that upbeatness if i was like walking onto a stage or into like a zoom presentation for it or something and so it's really it's the the song one has really stumped me my wife said what about circle of life by elton john Hmm. because of the Lion King story and it's just like it's a bit of a of an inspirational song and she said what you could do is as you get onto the screen onto the stage you could hold up your book like Mufasa holds up <laughs> oh no it's the the monkey isn't it holds up holds up Simba and so she's like maybe you should go on to that and then it would be a little bit funny for everyone if you were to impersonate the watcher mm-hmm. so I, I'd probably go with something like that and then I heard the song Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks. And there's something about the chorus of that song that is real, that reminds me where I came from, reminds me what real life is like for people. Yeah, it's actually really avoidance-based as well to begin with, but it's real and that's fine. You know, sometimes people do use... I'll sing it to you, shall I? I'll sing yeah, it to you, right? It's like, yeah. okay, it's like... I got friends in low places. And then it's like... Where the whiskey drowns and the beer chases my blues away or something like that. I'm like, brilliant. Just when you're feeling down, drink. That's what most people do. And that's what's real out there. Out there in the world. Don't get me wrong, it's not functional. It's not what people should be doing. But this is what people do when they're feeling down. And then the second verse is like, and I'm not one for social graces, but take me down to the oasis, which is a pub. <laughs> take me down to the pub so I was like yeah this is, this is brilliant this is this is the people that I know the people that I grew up with they're real people these are the sort of people that I'm enamored with and that I'm in love with and so yeah there was something about it I, I'm not sure if that made sense but yeah maybe that one but probably circle of life I think I think maybe what we could do is get some top DJ like like the aforementioned Paris Hilton perhaps mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> I'm not sure she is a top DJ I think she pretends to be but yeah. she you know how she gets that gig because of her platform. Anyway, that's right. Side yeah. note, but let's get another top DJ to do a mashup of those two somehow. My word, that would be incredible. I'm not sure sure Paris Hilton would be able to do it, but Paris Hilton could help me build my platform. So I don't really care how well she does it. You know, if she tweets about my book, happy days. Yeah, big shout out to Paris if you're listening. Have a if you, this you're book. there, Paris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let me, let me know what you think. Okay, okay, thanks. Well, I'll take you on to the next question, which mm. I'm guessing has also been a subject of much discussion in the Hooper household. Yeah. So, Nick, when Hollywood buys the rights for your book to make mm. it into a film, who will play you? I asked my wife this question, okay? First thing she said, Tom Hardy. Now, her reasoning for choosing Tom Hardy is not that I look anything like Tom Hardy. It is that she would like me to look like Tom Hardy. <laughs> and so if we did choose Tom Hardy and there was a film premiere, I'd have to leave my wife at home. She wouldn't be able to come because of you know her affection 
but Mr. Hardy, who is a very good looking man and a good actor as well. I like him a lot, but probably not Tom Hardy. Welsh, we could go Welsh. Martin Sheen. I like Martin Sheen, but he is probably a bit grey now. There was the the actor who was in the Pembrokeshire murders, a guy called Luke Evans. Mm. So he's a, a good actor. We should tweet him. We should tweet him, right? Maybe Luke Evans could play me. And then the outside the box one, who's got Welsh heritage as well, is the guy that played Elton John, Taron Edgerton. Now, he's like a little bit younger and so mm. maybe a little bit more hip for the kids, which I like to think that I'm a little bit hip for mm. the kids, not like so far past it that I can't connect with them. And so, yeah, those were my uh, those are my thoughts. But yeah, if uh, Tom Hardy's out there and you want to play me when this becomes a movie, unfortunately, you are not allowed to apply and you will not get the job if you do apply. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Sorry to break it to you like this, Tom, but th those are just the breaks. Now, your wife was yeah. so interested in this question. Did she consider who might play herself? No, she mm. hadn't. Who would play my wife? I'm going to say someone who was beautiful and perfect and loving. That's what I'm going to say to that question. Okay. There's no one out there that I think, oh, my wife really looks like that person. I'll tweet you about that. I'm going to have okay. a think about it and not, not commit. The thing is, I'm not brilliant on celebrity culture anyway. So it's not as if I could list a load of, a load of celebrities that would, uh, I'm thinking actors and actresses. Mm. Um, who's the one, the actress that plays Tomb Raider? I don't oh. know what her name is. That's what I'm going to say. The new Tomb Raider, Lara, Lara Croft. Um, but I don't know what her name is, but I looked at her and thought, oh, my wife looks a little bit like that, which makes me a very lucky man. I'm going to have to look it up, mate, because I can't leave leave our listeners hanging. No. So, did you say the new Tomb Raider? So the new Tomb Raider. I think she's a, a British second. actress. Alicia Vikander. No, is that the right one? Right, hang on. No. Oh, no, I've got the wrong one, have I? Uh, I don't know. No, it is the the girl I'm thinking of is what was the Stephen Hawking movie called? Um, I tell you what's coming up for me is that you and me couldn't host a celebrity entertainment podcast because we're a bit yeah. shit. Yeah, um, no, we'd have to do like a, a load of research, wouldn't we, to not come across as uh, irreverent and rude, which is fine. That's okay. Like, there's only so much time in the world. I've written a book, Russ. I haven't got time to <laughs> swat up on celebrity culture. I'd say so, yeah. it's called it's called the theory of everything. Okay, the actress that plays the wife in the theory of everything. Um, Felicity Jones. Yeah, we'll go with that Felicity Jones. That would be who would play my wife in the film. Let's go with that casting. Felicity done. Jones. There we go. Brilliant. Boom. We're done. It saves us up loads of time there <sighs> for when mate. it all happens. Exactly. So, Nick, mate, thank you so much for coming on to the show and chatting to me about your book. Like I say, hats off to you for writing this. I stand by you in this book. I applaud your living your life out loud. I anticipate that this will impact on students' lives. So get out there, folks, and have a look at it. Thank you for having me, Ross, and for having a human-to-human -human chat, which is what I knew I would have from speaking to you in the past and from listening to your people super episodes my hope is that the book impacts people and if it does then i hope people reach out to me and let me know and leave reviews of it so that i know of the positive impact that it's having and yeah best of luck going forwards thank you everyone for, for listening i really appreciate your time and ross's time and now and this is really interesting i've not said this before it's my son's birthday today so my son is six years old today I started writing this when my son was two years old. 
So it's more or less four years to the day that I started writing this book, which is a which is a cool moment for me. But what it also means is that I'm going to spend the rest of my day putting up a trampoline. And so I should probably go and get on with that now. And fade. Yeah, done, mate. Done. P-Supers, that's it. Part two in the bag. I can't recommend Nick's book highly enough, and he's giddy to hear from you about what you think of it. You'll find the link to his website and social media in the show notes at rossmackintosh.co.uk. If you like this episode or the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, follow, rating or review are also very much appreciated. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, peace-soupers, and bye for now. My son is six years old today. I started writing this when my son was two years old. So it's more or less four years to the day that I started writing this book, which is a a cool moment for me. But what it also means is that I'm going to spend the rest of my day putting up a trampoline. And so I should probably go and get on with that now. Mate, good luck with that. I hope you've got the right Alan keys. I'm going to need it. Oh, it's going to be horrific. I'm not good with that sort of stuff anyway. But yeah, thanks, Ross. And uh, take care, okay? Okay, mate. Happy bouncing.